0: Within just a few years, we will spend more on interest payments than we will on national defense. That is a bright flashing warning sign that we are on an unsustainable path. And clearly it is unsustainable because the fastest growing part of our budget is interest payments. And when you have a debt that's growing faster than your economy, obviously something will have to give.
1: To hear more about potential impacts of our increasing federal debt level, subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Pushkin. Shares in New York Community Bancorp fell 40% yesterday after a pretty brutal fourth quarter earnings call. The regional bank took losses on two real estate loans, one on an apartment building and one on an office building. It all raised uncomfortable questions about the state of the commercial real estate sector, which a lot of folks from regulators to market participants have been worried about. Today on the show, what's going on in commercial real estate and is it going to blow up the economy? This is on Hedge, the Markets and Finance Show from the Financial Times and Pushkin. I'm reporter Ethan Wu here in the New York studio, joined by the man who is not definitely not going to blow up the U.S. economy, Robert Armstrong.
2: You sell me short, Ethan. <laughs> I find that a little hurtful. Well, if you can cause a bank run with your columns, maybe it's
1: a different story. <laughs> and from London, Commercial Property Correspondent Joshua Oliver. Hey, Ethan. Josh, I don't know what you're blowing up over there in London. Nothing, but... if I can help it. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully. We're glad to have you here. We need someone that understands this stuff. Uh, b- before we get into CRE in some detail, I mean, we should start with this New York Community Bank Corp. story. I think it gave you know markets a rightful spook yesterday. Rob, you
2: wrote a piece about this today in the Unhedged Newsletter. What's going on with NYCB? Ethan, with troubled banks, as with cockroaches, there is never just one. Mm. So it is very sensible whenever a bank falls by 40% in a single day, looks to be under stress, it's natural to wonder what else is crawling around. Who's the next bank that's going to have trouble? Now, in the case of New York Community Bank Corp., I will say that there is at least one important extenuating circumstance that this bank did two big acquisitions in the last couple of years, the second of which was quite famous because they bought the assets and liabilities of Signature Bank, which is one of the ones that blew up in the Silicon Valley Bank. Yes, That was a kind of marriage arranged by the banking regulators, and it is normal for a bank to have some digestive problems after doing large acquisitions. That said, those two losses that you referred to, and on top of those losses, a pretty big provision for future losses, mm-hmm. that's real. And if there's going to be trouble in commercial real estate, some bank has to be the first to really get hit by it. And so it is correct to say maybe New York Community Bank Corp is the first of many.
1: Canary in the coal mine, I think, is is where a lot of people's minds go when they see any bank, especially a regional bank, struggling with commercial real estate. I mean, Josh, let me throw to you about this. This is your patch Describe the fears that people have about what's going on in CRE spilling over into the banking system. Yeah,
0: I mean, from a real estate point of view, it, it's not a new story. It's a story that's been going on for you know a year or more. Right. But basically, what's happening is almost all commercial real estate has debt on top of it. And, and here, actually, it's worth pausing and just saying, you know, when we talk about commercial real estate in the U.S. or in Europe or wherever, you know, think about this as all commercial buildings. So, you know, walk down the street and think about how many commercial buildings there are around you. You know, it, it is a huge generalization to talk about it as all one market. But many of these buildings do tend to have debt on top of them, and because of interest rates, values are falling. How that plays out, you know, depends on the individual circumstances of what different asset owners and different lenders have done. But obviously, in the long period of very low interest rates that we had, A lot of people levered up too far. Values are coming down. There are challenges to offices from working from home and other trends. And so, you know, the first person who has a problem is the owner of the building who loses their equity. And then once they've lost their equity and decided that it's not worth investing anymore into a building that doesn't make sense, whether it doesn't have tenants or that isn't going to have tenants or that costs too much money to keep, they will toss the keys and the owner hands back to the lender and then it becomes the lender's problem. And so that's when... You know, a
2: real estate problem starts to filter up to be a bank problem. Josh, to try to make this more tangible and put it in the context of New York, where the bank that had such tough news yesterday is, I walk down a street in midtown Manhattan. I look around at hundreds of billions of dollars worth of office buildings. Isn't it safe to say the value of those buildings versus... Four years ago is down by a third. Would that be a good Uh, guess? A third, if you're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) That surprised me. So it could be be more than that.
0: Fair to the to real estate owners. It's maybe it's more than a third if you're unlucky. Yes, pretty serious.
2: Yeah. So that's that's a lot of dollars of assets, and that's a big haircut. And so basically now, if there was more than seventy percent leverage on those buildings any building in that situation the loan is now worth more than the building yeah yeah and there are plenty of those
0: situations out there in new york you know in london and in other places i mean not i hasten to add by any means every building but you know i could you know i could name you some in each of the different markets and the list just keeps getting longer the other issue i think that we have since we're talking about office which is you know typically the biggest or one of the biggest sectors in commercial real estate is that, you know, this interest rate cycle, which, you know, they, this just happens in property, everybody kind of, it's factored in to an extent, is happening to come at the same time as a particular idiosyncratic office problem to do with working from home yes, coming out of COVID. And, you know, this, this is bigger than just an interest rate cycle. This is, you know, a generational rethink about where do people want to work? How much do they want to come into offices? What offices look like? And so that has really hit the kind of occupier demand, particularly in uh, America where you all don't seem to go to work, and it, you know, to a lesser extent in London and, in, and then in Europe. And so you know, at the same time that people are dealing with the interest rate problem, they are also dealing with a particular office problem. And I would add on top of that, at the moment, everyone wants more sustainable offices. So there's a lot of upgrades to older buildings that are required. And to bring workers back at this time of working from home, you need your office to be really nice. And so that's again more money you have to put in. So there's like all these different reasons why people have to put money into buildings that they don't want to put in, you know, topping up equity upgrades to this and that at the same time that the demand is falling away.
1: Well, hey, Rob and I are doing our part. We're here in the New York studio helping keep New York. Yes. O- office occupancy rates up. present. Present company accepted, guys. Yes. Yes. L- listeners, if you are listening to this podcast from home, you are actually the problem. Think of the poor. <laughs> think oh, of the poor property lenders. Yes. Think on. of the poor property
0: investors and get on the train. <laughs> you guys are the real heroes here because New York is obviously you know particularly bad. I spent a lot of time there last year, and, and the commutes suck, right? You guys spending all this time on the train. So actually, there was some interesting research I was looking at looking at commute times in major different major cities and return to office. And there does seem to be some sort of, you know, decent link there where, you know, London is the worst in Europe because we have longer commutes and less return to office. Other major cities in Europe are better, you know, so people are reasonably more reluctant to be dragged into an office in a city center when it takes them longer to get there. They're wasting more of their day. You know, I think what this all adds up to is like not offices are going to go away by any stretch of the imagination but there will be structurally less need for offices in most cities. So, you know, you're gonna take a chunk out. And one of the things that hasn't landed yet is how big is that chunk? Because basically, you know, the, the office demand fills the available office stock from the top down. And so you're pouring the demand in, and it goes to the very best offices first, and it trickles down, trickles down. And at some point, all the demand will be used up, and there will be a certain category of buildings that are just not gonna have a future as offices, so they need to find some other purpose, and you know, and for that category of building, you're not talking about a third less of their value as an office building. You are talking about a much, much bigger number. Mm. Sometimes all of their value is gone, yeah. and you know, it is what they call, you know, land for alternative purposes. You're,
1: you're, you're talking about a building where the costs of getting it to marketable quality are higher than the residual value in the building. Like yeah, it's a less you than zero. About, yeah.
2: It's an economic no. void. Yeah.
1: You are talking about a,
0: a, a piece of land that has a building on it, and the building is just a problem,
1: Yeah, right? Because yeah. it just
0: costs money, and it would be worth more if the building wasn't there. And you know, you've seen this in other categories of real estate, like in retail, where certain malls... Just weren't going to be malls anymore, and you had to find something else to do with that land. And that actually can be successful. Like you've got schemes now where they're building residential or they're building something else or mixed use. So land in the center of New York or the center of London will find a purpose, but it's about first of all, the losses and then the investment that has to go in along the way.
1: so the natural question here to ask is there are some of these buildings are going to be worth a hell of a lot less. I mean, who's who's holding the bag, right? This completely could be a problem that the economy can sail through. The question is, are we going to get a regional bank that blows up in, in, in the meantime?
2: Yeah. The great lesson of the financial crisis was that it's not the level of distress or losses that matters so much as where that distress and loss is right. concentrated. Is the loss concentrated in a link in the great economic chain that is then broken and then there are all these second order contagions that ruin everything else? Now, there is one reason, strictly from the point of view of the banking system today, not to worry, which is a classic way a regional bank with a lot of exposure to a troubled asset class would break, is that they would take the losses, that asset losing value, their solvency would suddenly be a bit in doubt, and the uninsured depositors ran for it. is simply unlikely to happen today because Federal Reserve and the other regulators come in and protect the depositors. That's what we learned with SVB and Signature and the others back in March. So depositors now, having watched that happen, are much less likely to run, which means banks can absorb losses without risk to stability in a way they might not have been able to do before last March. So that's a small, reassuring point.
1: So, Rob, that's definitely one reason to maybe worry a bit less about Siri blowing everything up. And, you know, Josh has hinted, uh, I think, at a few others, which is, I mean, this is a very slow-moving sector, right? Uh, A lot of the losses that originated in the 2008 financial crisis were not actually crystallized for investors until like 2015. It, t- it took years and years and years for these to materialize. There's very few liquidity events, unlike some markets where they're every day or you know every week. Uh, we're talking about years for liquidity events to happen. They don't really happen until you have to actually refinance the building. And I think these all create a certain amount of buffer space uh, between evaluation reset in commercial real estate and kind of broader problems with the banking system you know you could get a regional bank that that blows up it's definitely within the realm of possibilities it's in the probability distribution but i don't know if it's something that we need to all be you know all that panicked about
0: i would add on that you know reasons to be uh, slightly reassured list also just that we're all talking about it and paying attention and yeah, you know, that yeah. tends to make financial risks less likely to bite you but Ethan, you're absolutely right you know these things real estate just moves incredibly slowly and and people will be hoping that if they can survive for long enough the Interest rate cycle will lift them back out of trouble and they'll be able to carry on. You know, the motto in real estate has become survive until 2025. (laughs) And people talk about, we talk about refinancing and you know, refinancing driven sales, people talk about it as like a wall of refinancing. And I've always kind of felt like that was a bad analogy because a wall would hit the market all at the same time with the same effect. But what you have in commercial real estate is, you know, you can calculate how much refinancing there is in any given year, but the way that it arrives is. At different times for different asset owners with different results and different circumstances. So, it, you know, the, the analogy I like is it's more like one of those like internet games where you have a little character who moves along and they have to like jump over one obstacle and duck under another obstacle and just trying to keep on going. And, you know, it, like, you know, you could have one little obstacle is a covenant breach and the next obstacle is, you know, a refinancing event and people are just trying to get through. And so if some of them get through, a few of them will fall off, a few buildings have to be sold, you know, people will try everything they can just to you know, make it through until the market recovers. That will hopefully result in not having the kind of cataclysmic, the one big cataclysmic event. That's your takeaway, folks. Commercial real estate is Donkey Kong. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, Rob, about the, the game you play when Chrome doesn't load and you are the little, um, the little Tyrannosaurus Rex who bounces up and down, but uh, Donkey Kong, if you like.
1: The T-Rex just has to survive until 2025. (laughs) I refuse to laugh at that joke. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, back in a moment with Long Short.
0: Liquid Alternatives can offer some substantial diversifying returns not only in a 2022 world where traditional asset classes are challenged,
1: but also during a world where you have only a few
0: asset classes delivering on their expected returns. And therefore, you need some genuine
1: diversification within your portfolio. To hear more about managing risk in the face of uncertainty, subscribe to PGIM's The Outthinking Investor in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. This is Long Short, that part of the show where we go long a thing that we love, short a thing that we hate. Josh, are you long or short something? Uh,
0: Yeah, controversial. I am long returned to the office, I think. Mm. Wow. Not necessarily because I think it's a good thing, but because I think it will happen. And I think, you know, we, we will work in the office less, obviously, in the future than we did before COVID, but I still feel like we've got a ways to go towards getting to the equilibrium and that the you know, the, the powers that be are massing to try and force people back to the office, because I feel like at that, you know, uh, business leadership level, the consensus is hardening that people need to turn out more.
2: I am 100% making a massively leveraged trade on the other side of that. <laughs> <laughs> working from home is an absolute human good. Now, it may be we're a little bit less efficient working at home, but... Look, commuting is pure evil. That is hours of human life set on fire and used for nothing. Working from home is a glorious thing that must be protected at all costs. And so I am short return to office hard. I think, Rob,
0: the the mistake you're making is assuming that because something is a human good, corporate America is going to
1: allow it. No, that's just cynical. All right, Rob and Josh, thanks for being here. We'll have you both back very soon. And listeners, we're back in your feed on Tuesday with another episode of Unhedged. Catch you then. Unhedged is produced by Jake Harper and edited by Brian Erstad. Our executive producer is Jacob Goldstein. We had additional help from Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Special thanks to Laura Clark, Alistair Mackey, Greta Cohn, and Natalie Sadler. FT Premium subscribers can get the Unhedged newsletter for free. A 30-day free trial is available to everyone else. Just go to ft.com slash unhedged offer. I'm Ethan Wu. Thanks for listening.